Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with the most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can apply and use in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this podcast. Today with me is Twyla Dell, the author of the book Fuel and Change, speaker, environmentalist, and activist from Kansas City, the US. We will start our episode by defining sustainability, by defining what is it? Is it a final goal or is it a road, journey, destination? What are the milestones? And then we will focus on the historical fuel and energy transitions fuel and energy consumption and its effects, and we will see where we are headed as a humanity. I'm very excited. She joins us today at Sustainability Explored, and I can't wait to start our interview because I have lots of questions regarding the book that I'm currently reading by Twilight Dell, Fuel and Change. And I think she has a lot of insights and a lot of interesting information to share with all of us. Before we jump into our interview, as always, you can use this moment to subscribe to this podcast, to this channel, to always be one step ahead with the sustainability news across industries and countries. All right, if you're ready, let's jump right into it. Hi, Twyla. Thanks again so much for joining me today at Sustainability Export. Finally, the attempt number three is hopefully successful. For the listeners, I will quickly tell the story. Today, we're going to be talking about the energy transitions and the fuels and energy and our history with this complex subject. Second time we tried to schedule our interview, the power went off in the whole building five minutes before the interview. And it brought me this thought, you don't notice the energy, you don't notice the power until you suddenly don't have it anymore. Almost like health or happiness. So this is a very complex subject. I still don't know exactly how I'm going to be framing our conversation. Twyla, we will start with your background and how you got to the point of writing the book on energy and defining it as a fuel. Well, I've been an environmental educator for 30 years. I started out in 1990 and I created an environmental leadership program for business and community leaders. At the time, I invited uh, compliance officers, which is what they were known as at the time, of various corporations in Kansas City, Missouri, where I live. And we had a two and a half day weekend retreat, experiential and active in a wooding, wooded setting in which we re- kind of got the picture. And I did that for six years. I also had a version for science teachers and another version for high school students. And this was a great time. And then I went back to graduate school and got a PhD in environmental studies and wrote my thesis, which after six years has become the book that you're now mentioning. Fuel and change. Fueling change, how we created climate change, one fuel at a time. And as you say, we don't think about energy. We don't think about fuel until we don't have it. So the fact that they were moving away from the oil age which is a huge step and we're all afraid of it and we don't really know what that looks like. And we use this word sustainability as kind of a catchword 
ill-defined, uh, poorly laid out, and uh, we're trying to inch in that direction. So this is where we are, and I've laid out several scenarios for that. You, you mentioned sustainability. It's a good thing that we, you brought it up. When I started this podcast, I was given always a, the same sentence for, for an intro. Defining sustainability, fighting the buzzwords. It really felt like it became a buzzword where no one even knows what it means anymore to sustain, to be resilient. What is resilience? What is sustainability? Let's dive right into, into that subject to get the definition straight and right. What is sustainability for you? Is it a process? Is it a destination? Yes, uh, it is both a process and a destination, poorly defined, as I said. And we reach it by various routes, depending on where we are in society. And a corporation, for instance, has to start with controlling its waste product, its waste stream. And then it has to go on to improving that and then getting to benign by design products and then taking those to market and then transforming their culture from top to bottom so that they have a real unified approach and belief system in what they're doing. That's very sketchy. Uh, on the home front, we do savings of one kind or another. And I watched a film by David Attenborough. That's the, the nature voice of TV. And at the end, he showed people putting weathering into their attics. And uh, this was the big thing that he was suggesting. That's not enough, and very few people are going to do that. And so what is the biggest thing that we can do to get to even impact the idea of sustainability? It has to be around the fuel that we use, which is oil. And the biggest users of oil are our automobiles. And so we have 253 million gasoline-guzzling cars on the road in the United States alone, each one of them burning about 20 pounds of carbon dioxide for every gallon of gasoline that they burn. Burn a gallon of gasoline, leave behind 20 pounds of carbon dioxide. Or another way of saying it is about a pound of carbon dioxide a mile. So if you go 3,000 miles in your car, you've thrown the weight of your car into the sky. I like to deal with very simple uh, definitions and ideas. Mm -hmm. So the, the governor of California, for instance, Gavin Newsom, might do well to look at his burning state and connect that to the clogged freeways, four cars going north, four cars going south, and four lanes, I should say, five lanes and say, I bet if we stop burning gasoline, we could stop burning the state. And so uh, sustainability has various definitions depending on who's in charge of the process and what systems they have to change. But it's all about saving systems, changing systems, one stage at a time. Right. I was wondering, when I lived in France, we always received a, an electricity bill with the breakdown of how much percent was taken from a certain kind of uh, energy like production, nuclear, tide, or whatever else. In Ukraine, we don't have that. So we really we don't, don't... have it here either. Ah, you see? But I, I assume most of the energy is coming, in our case, from coal. 
and slush oil. Would switching to electric cars be really a change if the they plug and use the electricity that is derived from coal and oil you see yeah it's a conundrum that's a halfway step good step take the gasoline off the highway single biggest thing people can do is to move from gasoline to electric we have about a million and a half electric cars now in the u.s wonderful but against the 253 million gas guzzling cars obviously we have a ways to go that's a very good step but now since the coronavirus has impacted us we realize we can eliminate that kind of physical transportation to a great degree we're still in the early stages of working out how that's going to finally serve us the best way possible but it is a great step and the technology of zoom which you and i are doing right now is a wonderful moment in time where they come together and we think just in time just in time works really well and we need to go in that direction so electric cars are a halfway point and that's a good point hydrogen cars they're talking about hydrogen requires an infrastructure more complicated than electricity obviously and so we're going to be doing these halfway steps where we have to stop burning gasoline that is we are one fuel away from stopping climate change and that is gasoline i noticed you you said one fuel away that brings me a little bit closer to your book i want you to expand a bit more on the book why kansas city was taken as as a role model and so on but i saw you breaking down the fuel and energy eras probably from wood to coal to oil and to sun right right is it some sun is where we are headed what else is renewable if not the sun we've ignored it pretty much and we have sucked the planet dry for all of its resources and now we have to belatedly go oh okay we have this huge energy force out there if we are smart enough and willing we will make it work for us and so so the solar age is where we go next that is the renewability i mean nothing else we do is renewable everything else we do is a one-way track from resource to garbage wind hydro wind wind very much so yes but wind is not dependable you know every one of those those uh, propellers has to have a backup natural gas engine to fill those needs so yes it's a combination mm-hmm. and i hope we can do it in time because the imperative the imperative is that the north pole is melting the polar bears are drowning they're going to be extinct in the wild shortly i mean it's already melting we can't refreeze it there's no refrigerator we can turn to and put the north pole back in the freezer uh the south pole is melting the sea levels are rising i mean what kind of warning do we need you know we just had this this breach of the uh, land by the hurricane laura goes way inland and that's higher seas and huge uh expense and dislocation and and emotional and physical and financial trauma and again we tend to overlook it well this is something not even disturbing anymore this is an alarm that is ringing without it's stop. going off all the time 
Exactly. Yes. Right. Fires, floods, storms. I, I read just recently there was a study released that the amount of ice caps melt only this year already overcame the, all the amount that melt before. So do you think it is, I don't even want to use the, the term reversible because I don't think it, this is right. Do you think we, as a humanity, we still have a chance as adaptable, adaptable species to, to live on this planet? Because the, the deadlines that we're given by sustainability uh, SDGs, development goals, 2050, that's 30 years from now. Is any change even possible? Well, we are so short-sighted. The oil and, and uh, automobile companies met with President Trump in March, and they delayed the reduction of gasoline use in cars again. You know, oh, please help us. We just can't do it. Oh, my goodness. It's such a sacrifice. Well, we have to stop taking care of the car companies and the oil companies. We are so addicted to them. And we have to start taking care of ourselves and our planet. I think a couple of the most ironic images we have is people lined up in serpentine rows before COVID came along to get food. They were out of food, right? But they had a car. They had to put oil and gas in the car. They had to pay insurance in the car. They had money for the car. We are so addicted, but they didn't have money for food. This is crazy. And we have not questioned that. This is something deeply ingrained in the, in the mentalities, owning the, the cars and the houses. Right. And if you look at car commercials on TV, I watch network TV and they invariably uh, talk about, oh, summer is here, buy a new car, or here's our latest little gizmo. Like Lincoln, I think it's Lincoln, has some little bobble on the dashboard in which you can change the color inside the car. Wow. wow. Meanwhile, we're getting 20 miles to the gallon and leaving behind, you know, da da da, 20 pounds of carbon. And, but, if you go to buy a new car and you see the sticker in the left rear window of the car, it will tell you how many miles you get to the gallon, how much it will cost. And people say, okay, I can, I can afford that. But if it said, by the way, every gallon of gasoline you burn in this gas hog is going to leave behind 20 pounds of carbon dioxide, do you think people would go ahead and buy it? They'd say, oh, I don't want to do that. Why haven't you fixed this? But you see, they leave us sound asleep. And so we say, oh, yes, I need a new car. And that's why we only have a million and a half new electric drivers, because this simple truth has been so kept from us. Another question I have, when you say you will leave behind this much CO2, general public, I, I feel, doesn't have a taste of this complex and untangible terms don't see it. Yes, but we've been educating the general public since 1990 when the EPA was created. It was air quality. Car exhaust was killing us. And we've spent the last 30 years curing that to the extent that we've done pretty well. And yet these fine particulates from gasoline still go up into the atmosphere, create that heat shield that increases the warming of the earth I know that it is something that people don't think about because we don't talk about it. 
but in general they understand global warming is there they don't understand their contribution to it that's true now let's get to the book fueling okay. change how yeah. many ideas was born how long did it take to write and most importantly the question that was uh, bugging me why kansas city was taken as a role model let me say let's start with kansas city first i live right outside kansas city i live in kansas and and the state line runs down the middle of the city more or less i had already done a lot of traveling i've traveled all over europe and and uh, south america and east and so forth and i I really did not want to do that. And I had classmates, for instance, who were studying bushmeat in Africa, following some beetle in Madagascar. You know, I, I already did my jungle trek. And all of the research was right down the road, about 12 miles. And it's a wonderful city. It has a terrific history, which has never been fully appreciated. And so that was easy. You know, I took the easiest route. And it is a discreet city out on the plains, even though it's made up of many different cities, the uh, metro proper. And so I'm not sure how I got to, I've been thinking about reading about energy and I kept reading, you know, trying to get down to brass tacks. And in 1995, I held a meeting in Kansas City about energy and sustainability and we were grappling with how to define it. We still haven't done it. I felt that fuel was at the bottom of it. And so that's where I started. And so fueling change is a very street level approach. And we'll start with sustainability by the way of the Osage Indians who lived in, in the Kansas City area, central Missouri for 600 years on the ground, you know, with little dwellings made of saplings and leaves. And they had tiny little fires because obviously that had to be very carefully controlled. Uh, the only time they really needed to move was when they ran out of driftwood near a river because that's where they picked up most of the driftwood. And uh, they had to cross the Missouri River to get to the buffalo. And although there were buffalo as far east as Pennsylvania at one time, but that provided them with everything they needed, but also the body fat they needed to endure pretty cold temperatures because they really lived outdoors although they had these little sapling villages where body warmth even bring the horses in in the winter and they keep warm and they planted some crops and when you read chapter uh, one on the osage engines this is sustainability this is it and resilience they didn't have metal to create an axe to chop down the tree they didn't chop down trees so all their forests were intact they did use fire as a as a tool to sculpt the landscape so that they could find the game and clear the forests of underbrush and that kind of thing. But largely they kept it intact. You and I don't want to live that way, but that is complete sustainability. And when people throw out that term, I think, right, you don't know what goes into that. You have not really decided. You have not laid out the steps and they're very hard steps. Uh, but they're possible, and we have to go in that direction very quickly. What you were just telling, this is exactly the piece that I was reading today. And uh, I moved to the part where women's place is in the kitchen, regardless of what their <laughs> <Right>. actual work. <laughs> this, you know, this is the book that I wish I read earlier. 
it melts and combines the history and culture through this energy energy transition and really explains what is coming from where and why most importantly right. why wood why coal this transition from wood to coal and then transition from coal to oil, oil. Why did that happen historically? I am not that far away, and for the listeners to to understand a bit. It, it happened because the Industrial Revolution had already happened in England, and the colonies or the states on the East Coast wanted to compete with that, and the method of creating iron and steel from wood was too small a production and too slow. They had to have their factories near a wood plantation as they called it they had to cut down the trees it took 30 years for the trees to grow back they could only do iron and steel in small batches whereas coal was 10 times hotter than wood and created the kind of infrastructure in which they could create the industrial revolution which meant railroads railroads came on before the civil war obviously and the Civil War, when you get to that chapter, is actually fought over energy. We think that it's fought over the release of slaves, not so. The South was so totally invested in keeping their huge plantations going. I mean, this was, talk about a white uh, upper class controlling the rest. These people lived in absolute luxury. And then there were four million slaves keeping the cotton crop going in the South. And there were no machines, no machines at all, except for the cotton gin, which came on in 1797. And meanwhile, the North was gearing up to, to have steel plants and iron factories and building the first stoves. And I talk about stoves, and you know, women finally get off their knees and they get a stove that they can stand up to. That's all the North. So the South has no way to compete against an industrializing economy. And so they fought to retain something that was indefensible. And uh, they, there was no way for them to win. And so mm -hmm. they ultimately had to release the slaves because they were no longer tenable as a workforce. But the slaves were units of energy. And I have a chapter in there about units of energy. And the slaves in Kansas City, Kansas City just became a nice little discreet example of what was going on and i had to pick a refined area refined subject and this was a wonderful subject i i can't wait for you to get farther into the book and realize how rich my god the wagon train's going to new mexico and the three thousand heads of cattle they had to use to get there we don't realize that we just don't understand the numbers of people and animals it took to run a wood age expedition for instance it's so weird to get back to old times and understand that manpower was actually meaning manpower because when when i think of ancient times let's just call it this way i think of horses and horse powers even the cars you see people Yikes. Yeah, and uh, gasoline was discovered in 1855 in a chemical lab at Yale University, and uh, that's a wonderful story too, you'll read later on. 
was not usable until 1895 because there was no internal combustion engine. And as part of a chemical sample of an oil well that was in Pennsylvania, they discovered that gasoline was way too volatile to use. You know, you drop it on the floor, bang! And so nobody knew what to do with it. And so it was thrown out and thrown in the river, thrown on the ground, and because kerosene was the next most useful thing in this test tube, and kerosene lit up the world, and that's what made John D. Rockefeller rich, which I go into, and uh, that spread uh, the wealth of the United States around the world, because we had the oil, we refined kerosene, but every time you refined kerosene, you also had gasoline as a byproduct. It was a real problem. And among other things, they tried to create stoves using gasoline. Can you imagine cooking with gasoline? And uh, smelled terrible. And they had these little, what they called summer stoves, which they put out on the back porch in the heat of the summer so they didn't have to fire up the big wood stove or coal stove inside. And so they'd cook on those. And uh, it's just hair raising to think that they asked women to do that. And of course, many women were burned putting kerosene in the lamps. You know, women have always had to deal with the fire. That's been their role. It's something we really haven't looked at. Incidentally, if we jump forward a century, we get into the 1970s, 1980s, women's lib. Up until then, kitchens were a separate kind of closed room in the house. And now all of the floor plans are open. I'm personally addicted to HGTV, and so I watch all of these houses being renovated. And all of the kitchen walls have been taken down because women are now equals. They don't want to be cut, shut up in the kitchen with their back to the party, leaning over a hot stove. And so now it's become part of the architecture of our lives. We've liberated women from that. And, and if you read through the book, you'll see this is just kind of a sub-thread women get off their knees, they've been uh, at the hearth for thousands of years, and then they get to stand up to an iron stove, and then they, they try to use a gasoline stove, God forbid, and then they get into kerosene and, and electric, and this is a slow process of liberating women from the kitchen stove. So all of the ready-made products that we have now are part of this open floor plan, Men like to cook now. They've been allowed into the kitchen. It's no longer an ego thing for them to stay out. So there are many threads that run through this book, and it's all related to fuel. History is simpler than we think. It's all about fuel all the time. I love this. So catchy. And, you know, this book is apparently more complicated than I thought. For me, placing culture, history, and the development of fuel and energy all on top of another or mending them with each other was already complex enough. But if you add a feminism line into it, it becomes a real lasagna. Right, right. Layer after layer. How humans are so talented in finding first a miraculous solution, using it up until a certain point, and then it always turns into into a big problem. Plastic the same. Right, right. It was a wonderful solution ages ago. Durable, used everywhere, light. And look at this now. Same plastic, right. same thing, but so many things changed and we created a problem again for ourselves. 
is it something uh, ingrained in our I don't know, DNA, collective DNA? I am both blessed and cursed with a long view. So I go a million years back and look at when some humanoid first picked up a burning branch and thought, hmm, I bet I can do something with this in a pre-language kind of way. And so it's taken us a million years, give or take, to get this far with the use of fire. Fire is the home ground of humanity. And we must have it in order to be human. And this is the thing that we must hang on to and learn to use in a new way without pollution, without waste, without carbon dioxide in the air. And we've been moving as fast as we can. I mean, the Kansas City, I described 1820. That's 200 years ago. Missouri is going to, to celebrate its 200th anniversary being a state next year. That's a wink in time, right? Just a wink. And so, so much has gone on for us to transform. And you will love the steamboat years because this is the first time after thousands of years of using wood as a passive fuel for heat, all of a sudden it turns an engine. At the very last moment of its time as a central fuel, it turns a steam engine for about 50, 60 years. Yay for wood. And then it's replaced by coal very quickly. Then coal is, is replaced by oil very quickly. And then oil is replaced, and I use the word replaced advisedly. None of them has been totally replaced, but added to. And then we have nuclear. And now we're questioning whether nuclear is a long-range plan, and we're going into wind. And I suspect that there are several other technologies out there that can give us a zero-based waste and still energize our lives, but we haven't been allowed to see them and use them because of the big companies who want to remain viable and dominant. You know, it was 2006 that President George Bush said we are addicted to oil. Finally, the truth is out. We all knew I mean, he wasn't the first to say it, but he made it official. We are addicted to oil. We have to stop that. Addiction is wonderful and terrible at the same time, as we know. Yeah, to quit oil, it has first to be replaced, but by some other sort of energy. Replaced, right, replaced. So you start by stripping out the waste, and then you start by making uh, what we use it for more efficient, and uh, so it's an evolutionary process. And if I may, there are four parts of the revolutionary process in my uh, estimation. There is the stasis point where everything is, is working together. And this is pretty much where we are. And then the next uh, phase, the second phase, is hybrid. So we are getting into the hybrid. But for instance, a million and a half cars versus 253 million is, is not very far into the hybrid phase, right? So that's going to have to be collapsed very quickly. And then we're going to get to the third phase, which I call brink, where we have replaced enough of the old kind of services and goods. Brink, we get up to the top of the curve, we're maybe 45, 50% renewable, and then we go down the opposite curve into revolution. And that way we are looking at a new form of life, the way we look, the way we work, the way we do. And so those four parts 
are uh, something that we have to pay attention to and see where we are, how we make it move as fast as possible. If we take any sort of alternative energy, where do you think we currently are on this four-stage curve? We're at the stasis point, maybe going into hybrid. But if you divide it into four equal parts, we sure haven't worked our way out of stasis because we have a majority of carbon-powered cars and many, many, many other kinds of examples. So I couldn't give you a percentage of where we are, but we're not anywhere close to a completely hybrid, that's for sure. Good direction, long way to go. And what's the, according to you, what's the solution? If there is such a strong political lobby behind oil and gasoline and automobile, what to do? What can we do collectively or individually? Wonderful question. And we individually and collectively need to gather together and use what I call simple math, simple path, 20 pounds of carbon dioxide for every gallon of gas. I mean, this is arithmetic, right? Or about a pound a mile. And then you keep track of your own mileage and you look at cutting it back and then you take that to your church, to your workplace, and you do the simple math. I mean, you can do it on your phone, right? On your uh, calculator. And you realize that very quickly, the amount of CO2 you can remove from the atmosphere is uh, impressive. And if every city began to do that in every community, very quickly, we would be able to just stop it. Stop it. Because we cannot take care of the oil companies. We cannot take care of the car companies. We have to take care of our children and our children's future. I say, if you're going to have a baby, you better spend part of your time every day doing something that repairs the planet. That's why I believe in sharing economy. I don't own a car. I don't drive. In rare cases when I don't know, when I need to move from apartment to apartment, yes, I take the service of someone who has a car. But I don't I really don't see a point of me possessing the subject to occasionally use it. It's also a financial education question, I believe, because you sure. have to understand the difference between asset and liability. A new car bought today loses already after the purchase, the same moment after you, you bought it, it loses its value. In a year or maybe less, the new model, your, your current model of a car will cost significantly less because the new one is going to be out and just owning it you lose money on insurances on maintenance on storing it somewhere paying right. for parking, and so on and so forth so this is a mental thing to understand what do you buy when you buy a new car keeping this example does it really serve you and do you optimize your own usage of this car? Because it's not only the production, distribution, uh, to sell the car and then usage part. I'm, I'm afraid to think about discard and recycling part, if that is even happening. It, well, I, I guess in a developed country like the US, it should happen. In the case of Ukraine, not at all sure where those uh, obsolete cars end up. So when, when you integrate that thinking, just from the financial standpoint, 
you start taking different decisions. You start believing in sharing economy, in circular economy, and you understand that you don't need that much, in fact. If, if you don't live super far away from your work and you don't use it every day. And now, as you said, it's amazing how um, pandemic also worked its way out and connected people remotely. We don't have to travel. That's what we learned with Zoom. I mean, here we are, right? I didn't have to get on a plane and fly across the ocean, nor you. Thank God, because I'm not interested in doing that. This is wonderful. This is one of the real innovations that we've discovered in an otherwise pretty dreary landscape that we can do this kind of thing. I have qualified as a driver for driving less than 50 miles a month in my car so that I'm doing most everything by Zoom. The only thing I do in the car is go to the grocery store. I mean, I do that, but I've tried importing things from the mail and they're terrible. So I gave that up. That's also in a way, I haven't been to the U.S. I have a visa, but I haven't been able to use it. Well, you've been to Canada, similar. I wanted to, to bring up how the, the cities are built. Sometimes you cannot survive without a car. You cannot even buy a loaf right. of bread, you know? Well, we have not been good at that. We're very slow. Even though the city has itself reduced its uh, air pollution by 30% over the last few years, that's wonderful. You know, they've really created a fine program, Energy Independence and Security Act, and mandated that they would cut back on their uh, air quality problems. And so that's done well. What we do in terms of cleaning up our own traffic and our own uh, needs, that's something else again. We just haven't got that far. Uh, Kansas City just put in a light rail that goes uh, two miles, two miles from one shopping area to another. That's not nearly enough. That's a good idea, but not nearly enough. I have more questions now <laughs> than I have answers, to be honest. I feel like I need to progress more in the book to, to generate to even phrase these questions. And I feel like if you'd like, if, you, if you're open to that, to do a part two of this conversation when I am, I'm done with the book. One piece of advice you would like to share with the listeners of Sustainability Explored on the topic of fuel, energy, and sustainability. Well, I have to stick with my primary message. The most important thing you can do, the greatest impact is to stop burning gasoline. Figure out how to do it and tell others. Think of the polar bear. That's your poster child. <laughs> and once you figure that out, yes, share the message with the world. That's right. Super. Twyla, thank you so much for your time, for sharing thank your you, wisdom. Uh -huh. For now, I have enough food for thought to... <laughs> To keep reading and generating more questions. Please send me your questions and comments on the book as you proceed, as I hope you will, because yes. it's a great education tool that every sustainability officer ought to read, because if you don't know your history, you don't really know what you're talking about. A hundred percent. Totally agree with you on that. For now, I will have to let you go. Thank you very much again. And me we'll too. speak Again, soon, depending on the speed of my reading. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of pictures, remember that. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Well, that was me and Twyla talking about energy transition and the history of fuel through the history of sustainability. 
I appreciate you, as always, taking the time to join us today to enjoy this interview. I hope you love listening to it. I loved reading Twyla's book. I'm still in the beginning. We agreed to do a part two on the book with Twyla later on on this podcast, but I can already suggest you taking a moment to find the book Fuel and Change by Twyla Dell and start reading it as soon as you can. This is a really interesting read, very easy and digestible and very educational as well. If you have any questions for me or Twyla, please don't hesitate to reach out to both of us on LinkedIn. We are both findable, approachable, and open to discussions all the time. If you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, share on your social media, leave a review on the platform you're listening on. If you are willing to leave a review on our Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person. That's a little bit harder to do with other platforms because I don't have all the visibility. What I know and what I can share with you already is that we are uh, present on 75 at the moment platforms, including those where you can leave a review, comment, uh, suggest, and so on. This is sort of a Twitter for podcast consumers, uh, such as Podisay, Good Pods, and Repod. I always suggest some other related episodes to go through. I did an episode on energy transition with the participants and advisors of the NGO, German NGO called United Europe that dates back to November 2019. This is called discussion on the energy transition or something like that. You will uh, find it. And another one with the utility manager, Lincoln Blevins, that is called every job is a sustainability job. So go through those two. And of course, you're free to check any other related or non-related episodes as well. We have a LinkedIn page. We have a Facebook group. We have a YouTube channel. So Medium blog called Sustainability Export. So check all of those, uh, these things out. Uh, reach out, challenge me with questions, suggest guests, topics, nominate yourself, share your stories. Everything is welcome. It really makes my day every time the guests, listeners reach out and share with me that they listened or what they liked, what they didn't like, what they have to suggest and so on. It really brightens up my days and makes me very happy, makes me think that I'm on the right right path. All right, this was Sustainability Explored, episode number 58, season five, and me, your host, Anna Chashima. Thank you so much for being with us today, for listening, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.